If you've ever dreamt how fun it would be to run a bed and breakfast inn, stay with us for the hour ahead as we get a reality check from a former B&B owner in Britain. Hi, I'm Rick Steves. Today on Travel with Rick Steves, we'll see how the B&B system works in Britain, providing travelers with a more intimate alternative to hotels. Then, a pair of young Turks will guide us to the west coast of their country. They'll help us understand how you can best connect with the lives of the ancient Greeks when you walk the stone streets of excavation sites, like my favorite, Ephesus. In Ephesus, you get to see how opulent the life of those merchants used to be. Or you can just relax in the sun along the same Aegean coastline where the ancients traded and fought. Nature-wise, it's beautiful, beautiful. and you can always have an option of sailing around in the turquoise coastline. All that and tips from a travel medicine expert. It's just ahead on Travel with Rick Steves. Today on Travel with Rick Steves, two guides from Turkey suggest fun in the Aegean sun on their country's west coast, where the ruins from ancient wonders of the world meet head-on with yacht cruises and techno dance clubs. And we'll also hear what a travel medicine specialist advises in preparing to fly to the developing world. Let's start today's adventures in the comfort of a bed and breakfast in Britain with tour guide and former B&B owner Roy Nichols. From his own experience running a B&B with his wife, Roy knows just how the system works in Britain and how it contrasts with staying in a hotel. 877-333-RICK. That's our phone number for your questions and comments on Travel with Rick Steves. Almost anywhere you travel, you can stay in people's homes. It's called bed and breakfast. Every country, it's a little different. I think the best B&Bs, from my experience, are in Britain and Ireland. An added advantage of staying in a bed and breakfast is you get your own temporary local mother. Imagine being in a charming little thatched town, and you've got your own hostess who's so excited that you're there. And as you leave in the morning, she says, hey, take this umbrella because it's going to rain and be back by 8 o'clock because there's folk music in the village pub tonight. She's got a map of the United States on her refrigerator, and she's colored in each state from where she's had a visitor. And she says with a little wink, if you know anyone from Wyoming, they got a free bed right here. You got that kind of intimacy in it when you stay in a B&B. As far as I'm concerned, you're enjoying double the cultural intimacy for half the price of a hotel. I'm joined by my friend Roy Nichols, who's run a B&B for five years in England, and he's been leading tours around England for 30 years. And Roy's going to give us an insight into the B&B business in Britain. Roy, thanks for joining us. It's a pleasure, Rick. Now, when you think about bed and breakfasts in Britain, you've got big city B&Bs, you've got farmhouse B&Bs, town B&Bs, English, Welsh, Scottish B&Bs. How do they differ? There's not a huge difference. I mean, some of them are obviously bigger than others and more sophisticated, more facilities. But what we think of really of B&B is your local, as you've illustrated, the the local B&B that maybe just has three rooms. It's not their regular income, but it's something they do to enjoy and to, to bring a little bit of extra money into the household. Now, one of my favorite kinds of B&Bs is a farmhouse B&B. That's right. Again, it's a, an extra way of uh, producing income. The farmer's wife usually, of course, inevitably devolves to them to do it, will let a couple of their rooms uh, and run it round the, all the business of running the farm. Because just like in the United States, where small family farms have had quite a challenge in England, I think the economic uh, dynamics it's are really no different. small farm. It's really no different in Britain. So to survive, they rent out rooms. Oh, yes. I mean, it's all diversification these days. Now, when you stay in a farmhouse bed and breakfast, there you're more likely to get some of the traditions, even a hot water bottle for the bed to warm it up at night. These are some big old houses, and although they might have central eating, uh, they do get quite cold sometimes, and so having a hot water bottle in your bed is one of the little joys. With your wife, you ran a bed and breakfast uh, in the south of England for five years, and um, I wonder if you had um, American guests that had attitude problems, sort of a misunderstanding of what sort of services to expect when they go to a bed and breakfast. Well, occasionally people would come expecting, and I, I don't think it's entirely uh, really confined to American visitors, mm-hmm. it's to anybody. They might come expecting something you know, larger, like a, a small hotel, but I think the secret is just to let people know what facilities you have got. And these days, the vast majority of B&Bs have some very good facilities. Mm-hmm. Uh, having your own bathroom is, of course, quite standard these days. It's just that you don't have things like a bar or uh, So don't expect a hotel if you're staying exactly. in a B&B. You don't have the, the hotel services. No, but it's what service you do get is much more personal. And I prefer and that's the great I mean, joy. You've got somebody to watch TV with, with tea and biscuits at exactly. night. Exactly. At the very least, you'll have a cup of tea with a hostess or something like that. Um, local chat, local advice, which is something you just wouldn't get in a hotel. Now, the government in Britain regulates the B&Bs, uh, and you've got sort of standards. How does that work? Well, there's, um, th- th- it's run by the English Tourist Board. 
and they give a star rating for each of the B&Bs depending on the facilities, starting with one or two stars, going up to five stars with gold and silver awards. And it'll range from the obvious things like what facilities they've got, the size of the bathroom, the size of the rooms, um, is the room service, all that sort of stuff. But certainly all of them will have the basic facilities. You know what defeats the whole purpose of this rating system? I think a lot of B&B owners get all hung up on the checklist of facilities to offer and they forget about being welcoming and cozy and friendly. Of course. And ironically, you could pay more for a five-star B&B and find yourself having less of a cozy, enjoyable experience than going to a two-star B&B. And in fact, the secret really is to strike the uh, a good sort of middle ground. Go for somewhere that's got a three or four-star rating that will perhaps have its own bathroom, but at the same time is small enough and friendly enough to, to give you the welcome that you're looking for. You ran a bed and breakfast for five years. Did you screen people when they came to the door and wanted to stay there? How, who did you not let in? I don't think there's anyone that we didn't let in in that time. Footballers? I, mean, uh, I think we even had some footballers staying once as I know. well. In a lot of cities, when they have a, foot, uh, a soccer batch, they don't they want to. Yeah, and, and inevitably, there are going to be some people that, and perhaps we were just lucky, I don't know, but certainly there's going to, sometimes there's going to be some people you might not want to let in. I understand in England there's a huge jump in taxes if you gross more than a certain amount of money. Yeah, that's right. And, and then there's also all sorts of regulations. If you have more than three rooms, for instance, then you start coming into regulations over fire escapes. So you're more and of a sorts. guest house then. Exactly. You know, a higher standard of expensive regulations. And that's why the vast majority of B&Bs, smaller B&Bs, that's their sort of limit, those three, three rooms. Yeah, They claim that. They claim three rooms, whether they have three they rooms. They might have a child's room and grandma's room that exactly. is available for rent. A little a extra room that they, they let at the height of the season. And isn't there a sort of a threshold on your gross income where your taxes jump 10% or something like that? Well, I mean, you start getting involved. I'm not sure whether you actually jumped sort of a particular new rate of tax, but certainly uh, if you become very, very busy, then you have to start registering for VAT and all those sort of things. So it becomes much more complicated. So keeping it three rooms uh, simplifies things. Yeah. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're speaking with Roy Nichols, who ran a bed and breakfast for five years, eventually sold it. Why did you sell it? Why did you get out of the business? Um, well, Jodie and I had run it. My wife, Jodie, and I had run it for sort of five years. Uh, it's, it's hard work. People think that it's going to be a very easy thing to do. But even with three rooms is one of the number we had. You know, I've met people that dream of running a and b and then the reality sinks in. And every morning, you're public. You've got guests there it's, that want to talk to you. It's hard work. And I have to say that it was my wife, Jodie, that did most of the hard work. Uh, so after five years, she decided that was enough. It's probably a good move, right? I'm Rick Steves. Our phone number is 877-333-7425. And Chris is on the phone from Shelton, Washington. What's your thought on B&Bs there, Chris? I was just wondering, um, as a foreigner trying to start a and b in a foreign country, how um, difficult or easy is it to try to start one as a foreigner? Uh, that's a difficult question, Chris. Um, Certainly, the, the the most basic thing you'd like need to have is a, a work permit or a, a right to settle in Britain. Um, that might not always be very easy, and you'd have to look into that separately. Assuming you can settle in Britain and buy a business in Britain, then it is relatively easy. It's looking really a matter of looking around for a suitable building in a suitable area. Do your your background studies. Make sure that you're moving into an area where there is a demand for accommodation, that you're not um, going to an area that's already saturated with accommodation, um, making sure that you choose the right building that is adaptable to a B&B, that if you're having more than three rooms, for instance, you've got fire escape facilities and all that sort of thing. So it's really about doing your background studies on, on areas, the type of buildings, all of those sort of things. Would it be wise, Roy, to buy an existing B&B? I know a lot of B&Bs are for sale, as there's a lot of turnover and burnout among owners. It is. I mean, a lot of people go to B&Bs towards retirement, so when they come to a final retirement age, they, they sell them on. And then you've got a clientele and a reputation. Exactly. And so it really is. I mean, you can make a, a good start by buying a house that's never been a B&B in a new area. But uh, as you say, Rick, to buy an existing B&B uh, and then develop on the trade is a good move. Chris, does that give you some ideas? Yeah, I was also kind of wondering on a follow-up, could you use your, since you are from a different country, could you use that to your advantage, or do other places they kind of want it to be more local-oriented? Oh, I, I'm, I'm sure it would be an advantage in some areas. I mean, there are a lot of, particularly if you went to a small town or a city uh, where they get lots of American visitors, it would be nice, a little American home from home. So although some people do go for um, something new. A lot of people are going for something familiar as well. So certainly in some areas, it would be um, an advantage. I have to say my wife, as Rick knows, is an American. And Jodie made a great success of running the B&B. Okay. Good luck, Chris. 
All right. Thank you. Yep. I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. I'm speaking with Roy Nichols. We're talking about running a B&B. Roy, one of the charming things about B&Bs is you get tea in the room. You get that family table for breakfast. A lot of little extras. You know, the, the tea, it's a beautiful part of being in Britain. Oh, yes. And, and, and although we are becoming increasingly a nation of coffee drinkers, tea is still an institution in Britain. And it comes with every B&B, doesn't it? It's oh, like yes. required yes. almost. You in the room, to... a little tea-making machine. Well, it, it's seen as one of the, the extra facilities that you can provide uh, to have sort of um, a teapot and tea bags and all those things for making tea. An adjustment for a lot of American travelers is the plug. You actually have a switch on the plug to activate the plug. Well, that's part of the system, the electrical system in Britain, so that all appliances, um, when you put them into a socket, have to be physically switched on. All right. So I, I, I would imagine a few of your customers would plug in their appliance and not get any juice and ask you what's going on, and you say, well, you've got to turn on the plug. Exactly. That happens more times than I can remember. Another case of confusion is showers that you have to turn on in advance to heat up the water. Again, because you're dealing with old buildings, um, there's a myriad versions of heating systems in Britain. It's not as if you're starting with many new buildings. What's the smoking situation now for people going to bed and breakfast? It's banned in all public places. So Including in hotels and bed and breakfasts, in restaurants, in pubs, smoking is banned. And I was joking that uh, breakfast that you get included in your bed and breakfast uh, famously was sort of a plate of cardiac arrest, a heart attack on a plate. Well, it's, it's always a joke. But in fact, you, what you're going to be presented with is a hearty breakfast, bacon, eggs, additions, mushrooms, tomatoes and things like that. It's going to give you, give you a really good start to the day. Designed going back to farm times when you had to have enough food to get you going until dinner time. Exactly. People were walking or cycling, being very, very active, and they needed the, uh, the, the energy to keep going. A good traditional English fry. Exactly. But these days, things have moved on, diets have changed. And so if you're not that much of a fan or you've tried it once and once is enough or you don't want it every day, yogurts, fruit. You all... always have a healthy option. There is generally a healthy option, yeah. In fact, I know B&Bs that compete for the Healthy Breakfast Award. Exactly, Rick. I've been speaking with Roy Nichols. We're talking about bed and breakfasts in Britain. And Roy, you ran a B&B for five years. You've spent 30 years taking groups around, enjoying B&Bs. Let's say you and your wife are going to go on a vacation and really enjoy the English countryside. Give me an ideal B&B experience. Well, with a great deal of thought, I think it has to be Margaret's Place in the Newlands Valley in the Lake District in the north of England. Beautiful farmers building, uh, you sit at a lovely little bench, beautiful view of the Newlands Valley overlooking the fells and the valley, some of the most beautiful scenery in England. Her husband's probably out shearing the sheep. Looking after his flock, um, and she carries on the work of looking after the guests. And there's not a great deal of difference between the two. Beautiful idea. Roy Nichols, thank you very much for introducing us to some insights into the world of bed and breakfasts in Britain. It's been my pleasure, Rick. There are lots of B&Bs and pension-style guest houses in western Turkey, where laying hands on ancient history is about as easy as getting dinner at a seaside restaurant. We're going there next. Then, we'll get a house call from travel medicine specialist Dr. Edward Chapnick with advice for precautions to take before venturing to more challenging countries, places where a mosquito net might be included as a must on your packing list. It's Travel with Rick Steves. amazing to me how many thousands and thousands of travelers get to the Greek islands and it never occurs to them to take a little boat ride beyond that and get to the Turkish mainland. From several fascinating Greek islands, you can hop right over to the Turkish mainland and make more change culturally in that last little voyage, last one-hour voyage, than you made by traveling all the way from the United States to Greece. Today, we're going to talk about the west coast of Turkey. That's the Aegean coastline of Turkey, an area that 
in centuries before Christ, was called Iona, part of the Greek civilization. And I'm joined by two Turkish tour guides, Taylan Tashbashi and Aishegul Ulu, to join us and give us an insight into the west coast of their country. Taylan and Aishegul, thank you for being with us. And excuse me for butchering your names. <laughs> thank you. Aishegul. 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 Thank you. And Taylan, your last name is pronounced? Tashbashi. Tashbashi. All right. Well, I'm glad that you guys are welcoming and forgiving to tourists that don't speak your language. <laughs> we are. You're welcome. I made that introduction to the west coast of Turkey. Did that make sense to you the way I described it? Definitely. Yeah. I mean, Aegean as a whole, when you look at it, on one side you have Greece and Greek islands, and on the other side, obviously, you have Turkey, modern Turkey, Aegean Turkey, the western Turkey. And much of the sightseeing on this region of Turkey, the west end of Turkey, is the ancient sightseeing is Greek sites and Roman sites, and the modern sightseeing, of course, is Turkish sites. Yes, Greek, Roman. Most of the sites are concentrated, actually, along the west coast. Too. Now, that was yes. the, I mean, the, the cultural sort of heartland of Greece in a certain time in, in ancient times was actually Iona. That was considered a, a very um, important part of the Greek civilization. Yes, exactly. When we hear about all those inventions and so on, People know that it's a Greek invention or it's a Greek thing, but what was referred to Greek was indeed taking place in ancient Ionia. So ancient Ionia, present-day Turkish mainland, Present, was yeah, where Turkish many of the greatest mainland. Greek yeah. uh, innovations and, and, exactly. uh, and uh, celebrations of their culture occurred. And when we think about Ionia and the west coast of Turkey, Aegean Turkey, we think of my favorite uh, ancient site, Ephesus. Yes. I love Ephesus. <laughs> exactly. It's Such weird. a great site. When you take a group to Ephesus, uh, a bunch of American travelers, uh, what resonates with them? What do they find a highlight? Well, especially the size of Ephesus. Of course, it's a, it's an enormous area. When you think about it, it's almost at the same size of Pompeii, you can say that. It is, and it's a site which had been excavated for more than 100 years. <laughs> and I believe most of the city is yet to be excavated. Yes. So it's huge and 70% of it is still underground. Yes. Definitely. We can call <laughs> now, one third. One third. And it, it used to be once the capital of the, well, Roman province of Asia, which means there were wealthy traders. And, well, in Pompeii, in the houses there, you get to see, I mean, how life used to be. But in Ephesus, in the terrace houses, for instance, you get to see how opulent the life of those merchants used to be. And these were the people that uh, Paul visited uh, the Apostle yes. Paul, when he wrote his letter to the Ephesians who lived in Ephesus. Exactly. Well, uh, he was there several times because there was a great uh, potential from Gentiles who could be Christians later. So he came again and again and preached there to convert the people. And today, just at the edge of Ephesus, is a site very important to a lot of Christian pilgrims, which is the home of the Virgin Mary. Yes. Now, do you believe, uh, Thailand, that this was the home of the Virgin Mary? I, you don't have to. Tell me uh, frankly. I cannot say definitely that it is the house of uh, Virgin Mary, but uh, there are proofs. What are the cases that people make who believe that the Virgin Mary actually spent her years after her son was crucified and gone? You know, uh, She was in the care of Paul. And John. Uh, that's why they believe that because John was in Ephesus. Oh, I'm sorry, it was John. Yeah, yeah right. Yes. And as well as that, I mean, the Greek people who lived in Ottoman Turkey up into the, well, 19th century, they used to have some celebrations called Panayakapulu, which is indeed in dedication to Virgin Mary. So this is not a coincidental thing, we believe, that they held it there in that neighborhood. And the house is actually intact. I mean, there's... Yeah, well, indeed, uh, it is intact, but it is based on the foundations of a church, well, or, or a house, sorry, uh, which was proved to be dating back to the first century, which is the timeline that she must have lived in. So for centuries, Christians have gone there thinking this is the house of the Virgin yes. Mary, and there's some indica there's some rationale for believing that. Yes. To me, the most impressive site in Ephesus is that incredible library. Yes, exactly. Well, it's one of the really most thrilling places for people because they get to see a building standing up there, and it's like 80% of it from original, well, remains of that building, which was erected again. It's an incredible visual site. Beautiful uh, restoration there. It took like seven years. Uh, I heard a lot about that restoration process because uh, my father and mother-in-law as archaeologists mm -hmm. worked there. And they've, they've been telling me that it was a, 
you say that it's like a puzzle you get now. They yeah. said it's much, much difficult than a puzzle yes. to be in that uh, And we shouldn't process. forget that it was the third largest library of the ancient world. Right. And your mother and father worked there in the excavation? Yes, they did. Oh, <laughs> that's interesting. Great. I understand there was like a double wall to keep the humidity out so the uh, precious books or mm-hmm. scrolls or whatever would, would be okay. Yes. I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking about the Aegean coast of Turkey with two guides from Turkey, Thailand and Aishegul. And our phone number is 877-333-RICK. You can email us at radio at ricksteves.com. Darlene's on the phone in uh, Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Darlene, thanks for your call. Thank you for the opportunity. Um, Just last week, we decided to go to Turkey for a two-week vacation at the end of March. And um, we're traveling with our seven-year-old daughter. We thought we'd spend five or six days in Istanbul and then the remaining touring other parts of Turkey. And we were really kind of focused on Western Turkey. We've always traveled independently by renting cars, and staying in homes or apartments. We've traveled that way for 20 years. From my brief research, it looks as if renting a car is not the best idea. Neither is travel by train if we want to go to small towns and sites, which is really also how we prefer to travel, is to maybe choose one city to visit and then primarily stay to small towns and villages. So the research I've been looking at says to take buses, which really sounds um, foreign to me. Can we travel comfortably and where and when we want to uh, in western Turkey by traveling by bus? May I? Yeah. Darlene, hello. You mentioned about renting a car. Uh, Yeah. That was a clever idea not to, maybe. A clever idea not to. Not to, maybe. (laughs) In other words, a stupid (laughs) idea too. Okay. I don't know your experiences driving outside this country, but uh, let's get to the train. Uh, for train, ge- the geographical situation of Western Turkey is interesting because mountains runs east-west direction. Yeah, That's well, why you have to go, to the sea. You have to take the train inland and then uh, take another train to the western shore. But uh, about buses, I would definitely say that you might need to change uh, buses in some places, but that is our major way of transportation between cities and you will find really comfortable buses. Well, I can say uh, you will find really comfortable buses uh, during your, you know, traveling time. They serve you tea, coffee. That's a great service that you get. And it's very comfortable seats. Oh, Darlene, I love the buses in Turkey and I hate the trains in Turkey (laughs) and I don't want to drive in Turkey. The buses (laughs) leave from, you you take a map of Turkey and put the 50 biggest cities on the map and you've got buses, I swear, going from every city to every other city almost all the time and they're dirt cheap. You know, depending on at what time of the day you want to travel, it can be in the morning, a scenic journey that you can do or we have the express buses. If you want to, you know, save your time, you can take the... Express night drives. Overnight. Overnight, yeah. And so the, you can save also from, well, staying one night in a place. Isn't there an elegant is, ritual on the bus drive? You've got some nice little comfortable things happening. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, you can mingle with the locals. That's one of the things. That's a great experience, I will have to say. But yeah, uh, you also are offered some Turkish nice treats like the lemon kulon, which is a great indication of Turkish hospitality. You're always offered this, some little candies, some chocolate So that the, maybe. the attendant will come down the aisle and squirt yes. lemon cologne on you and you wash your hands and freshen <laughs> yes, your face and your refresh neck. yourself. It, it's not for the smell, everyone. Just <laughs> to keep the smell down. <laughs> no, no, no. no, it's, no it's it's it's... But the point, Darlene, uh, you don't want a car. You want to take the buses and you just go to the bus station, from my experience, and there's buses leaving all, yes, the, all well, the time. Yes, well, you might need to maybe make a yeah change or connect little right mm-hmm. to the smaller town you want to end up in. Because it's usually the big cities that they have the buses running, you know, frequently. But and you then can always have the option. Buses that there are the mini like buses. shuttle buses going shuttle all the time. Shuttle buses going all and the time. You can yeah. actually hire a taxi for a couple of hours if exactly. you need to. Exactly, that's going to. And be I would, especially if you're traveling with a family and a few people, consider the luxury of having a taxi by the hour to take you running around the countryside. I would imagine a lot of cabbies earn a lot of good money, giving very good service to foreign travelers by driving them around, out and about, and uh, also local guides are not very expensive, Darlene. So that would be the way to go, I would say. For the money you'll save renting a car, you can take buses and taxis. Great. So 
it is feasible to be in a small town and find a taxi or some service that would take us to a historic site or some ruined site that we might not have bus service yes. there? Depending on the place you are staying at, you can always find your hotelier help you, you know, to get to the right address for you. I mean, either local guides or there are some uh, companies around making some daily excursions. Oh, the, excur the several, day excursions yeah. are wonderful. Yes. And they lace together many sites uh, very efficiently and quite economically. So you, you go from Selchuk or Kusadashi or whatever, and you'll see three or four great sites in a day in every direction. So it's, uh, there's no reason to worry about that. Well, don't forget, uh, the smaller the towns that you go, the smaller vehicles that you will get as public transportation. So, But the more interesting experience is going to be, in another word, because... In the small towns. Yes, in the small towns, because you get to have the feel of the Aegean culture. I mean, uh, I want to describe it in some the short Aegean, words. The Aegean yeah. culture. Ah. Well, we have, like, you know, geographically seven regions of Turkey, and Aegean Turkey is known for... Some of the important things, such as like easy going life, it's not like the Mediterranean, maybe, but I mean, people have their agrarian societies, and after they are done with their harvests, they are there in the coffee houses, uh, men in particular, and ladies, well, socializing in their own social ways. It's very important, for instance, olive farming. We get to see when we are having these drives all along the road, these beautiful olive orchards. It's the typical thing in Aegean Turkey that we cook olive oil dishes. That's how you would name like Mediterranean cuisine in Turkey. It's what we call Aegean cuisine indeed because olive oil is the main thing. Thailand. Well, you mentioned about harvest. I, I want to get back yes. to that uh, because sure. it's not only they do the harvest and they just sit around in the coffee house. That's actually quite a big time of uh, the year, harvest season. And also, if you're so lucky, Darlene, uh, you might come across to a harvest uh, exactly. that is such great festival fun. or a maybe a wedding in a village. That sounds fabulous. Thanks have a, so much. Have a good time. Thanks for your call. Have a good time. Bye-bye. Mm -hmm. I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking about the Aegean coast of Turkey, the west end of Turkey, with Thailand and Ayşegül, who are guides from Turkey. And I want to finish off just by letting each of you talk very quickly about the connecting points from Greece, because so many people go to Samos, a great Greek island, and they can take the little one-hour boat ride to Kusadashi, which is a jumping-off point for Ephesus. You can go to Kos, another very nice Greek island, and take a quick connection over to Bodrum, And you can go to Rhodes, and Rhodes is a fascinating place to visit uh, from a Greek sightseeing point of view, and straight across the strait there, easy connection to Marmaris. Yes. Uh, first of all, these three Greek islands, are there regular boat connections to the Turkish mainland? There are. And it's, uh, so you don't need a visa or anything like this? Uh, ah, you do need a visa. We Turkey. do need a visa, but uh, from the Greek islands to the mainland Turkey, uh, a lot of Greeks come for shopping, especially fruits and vegetables, because we have... Uh, but does an American tourist need to have... He, he gets the can, visa when he arrives? You can get it upon arrival. So upon arrival. For so an American tourist, it's not a big problem. You $20 and you buy it, yes, something like this. It, it usually like comes it. with the ticket okay. in some places. So that's, that's mm -hmm. easy. I remember a time when Greece and Turkey were not getting along very well, and it was actually very hard to make that journey, and you had to go all the way around through Thessaloniki. My, my yes. But that's long gone. That's good. Okay, so we got the three islands, Samos, Kos, and Rhodes in Greece, where you can jump over to visit Kusadashi and Bodrum and Marmaris. We know Kusadashi is basically a cruise port and a, and a, and a fun place, good shopping town, and a jumping-off point to see Ephesus. Talk a little bit about Bodrum, about Marmaris, and maybe catching a boat from Marmaris. Bodrum is quite a big peninsula. Driving around the peninsula takes around like an hour and a half, probably, without stopping. And there are several uh, little centers there. But the town center is the most important part where you get the nightlife. Very popular. Yes. The Istanbul nightlife in winter, it's almost all down in Bodrum during whole summers. I mean, all the people, they come for their holidays, but they don't miss ah. anything from the nightlife so when they're Bodrum in Bodrum. So Bodrum is like the Cancun or the, the Fort Lauderdale of, uh, of Turkey. Definitely. You're right. And there are lots of culinary places lately in a place in the peninsula Culinary called, places? Uh, yeah, lots of beautiful restaurants, restaurants and boutique hotels well, in the, that neighborhood. We, we are forgetting about the Crusader Castle in Bodrum. Yes. <laughs> a Crusader Castle in Bodrum, which was actually built with pieces of stones coming from... A, One of the ancients of the world. 
which was once in Turkey. <laughs> Seven like, wonders of the ancient world, yeah. the mausoleum of Halikarnassus. Yes. They tore down the mausoleum to build the castle. Yes. Exactly. <laughs> oh, nice job. And then also in Bodrum, we've got the uh, impressive uh, museum for shipwrecks and something. Yes. Yeah, that's in that base in that crusader's castle. And this is a, a good collection of actually the treasures they found from, from old it's shipwrecks. It's amazing, and it, it changed a lot in history. Ancient I mean, the shipwrecks, finds, actually? Ancient shipwrecks. Shipwrecks that was excavated around in Bodrum and also along the coastline. The display room is in so, that castle. So, lots to see from a historical and cultural point of view. It's an and amazing lots of partying place. going on if you want to hang out with young Definitely. Turks that know exactly. how to have a good time. Old town is and lovely. You and you that's can do sailing, taking the boat trips. Okay, that's Bodrum. And moving along, if we go to Kusadashi from Samos... Ephesus, obviously, yes. it's 15 minutes away from Kushadasu. Mm-hmm. And Marmaris, Marmaris has a lot of natural beauties around and lovely mm. beaches. It's dotted with beautiful bays and beaches. Marmaris is basically a resort area for British and Irish, which they prefer coming down there a lot. But still, nature-wise, it's beautiful. It's beautiful. And you can always have an option of sailing around in the turquoise coastline. You can take daily boat trips from Marmaris, which will take you to, well, Gökova. In uh, it, this place had been under the big debate. There was this thermal plant, which was planned to be built there, but people protested against it because it's such beautiful place nature-wise. So in particular, there's a little islet called Sedir Islet. We also know it by the name Cleopatra's, Cleopatra's Island, yes. where she swam. I mean, there are several places for Cleopatra and well, Marcus Antonius to have the honeymoon, that but that, that is the Cleopatra. best one because the sand is a living organism. Uh, nowadays, they indeed even you know ban uh, that regular boat trips, so they have to stay away, but they can go to the island. So it's a preserved area today. So basically, Marmaris is popular for the. Brits that are coming down there for the cheap yes. uh, fun and the sun. And sailing, too. And sailing. And uh, there's probably cheap charter flights from London then to yes. that area. And from there, whether you're interested in the British scene or not, you can get on a boat and enjoy some beautiful sightseeing from there right. by boat. Yes. I'll tell you one thing. I love the island of Samos and I love the island of Rhodes. I'm mm-hmm. not, I don't know that much about Marmaris, but to jump from each of those to the Turkish mainland, from there you've got that wonderful bus system that can take you to Komakali, Aphrodisias, Ephesus, you Dalian. name it. You've got all sorts of wonderful sightseeing delights on the west coast of Turkey. Thailand and Ashegul, thank you very much for teaching us about the west coast of your beautiful country. You're, You're welcome. welcome. An ounce of prevention with the travel doctor. That's next on Travel with Rick Steves. We're at 877-333-7425. I'm David Willett from uh, Australia, and I travel with Rick Steves. Boogie boogie. I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. No matter where you're traveling, you need to travel smartly when it comes to your own health. So we're joined today by Dr. Edward Chapnick. He's a... the director of the Division of Infectious Diseases and the head of the Travel Medicine Program at Maimonides Medical Center in New York City. Dr. Chapnick, thanks for joining us. Oh, my pleasure. Thanks for inviting me. For all my life, when I travel, especially in the developing world, I've had to check in and see, you know, what shots are required and so on. How has the field of travel medicine changed in the last, uh, you know, generation? I think the most important way the field of travel medicine has changed is the availability of many new preventive vaccines um, that protect against a number of common and specific travel-related illnesses. But the most important point is the basics haven't changed all that much. And the basics include things like food and water safety and proper use of insect repellents. And that's something that hasn't changed for a very long time. So if you're a smart traveler knowing just how to stay healthy in regards of what you eat and drink and uh, what kind of uh, insecticides to put on you, uh, you're going to lessen the need to go to the doctor or take that medicine. Is that right? Exactly. There's a lot more things that there aren't specific preventive measures available for than things that there are. Uh, But the general preventive measures, which really just come down to common sense, um, are very effective. If you're just going to Greece, let's say, or Spain, do you need to go into a medical travel center and be concerned at that that level? Or where does your service really apply? Now, most developed countries, such as those of Western Europe and North America, 
um, general food and water safety measures are really enough. And one thing that's often forgotten when we travel is that the most common reason people need medical attention while traveling is accidents. And a lot of us tend to get a little more careless when we're on vacations. Right. So paying attention to the basics like putting on a seatbelt when you get into a car is really important to do. I imagine you've heard some scare stories about people who were careless in that regard. Let's talk about shots, though. Where are shots required, actually, in general? In general, shots are required for travel to areas like Central and South America, Africa, uh, the Indian subcontinent, the big part of Southeast Asia. And there are, are even a few things that are indicated for travel to Eastern Europe. How does one find out where exactly uh, a shot is necessary? Do you ask your travel agent? Uh, do you uh, see the tourist board? Or do you call your, your own local doctor or what? All of those are reasonable sources of information. Probably the best place to find the specific information about the place you're going, uh, the Centers for Disease Control has a very good website and call-in number. What is the Centers for Disease Control website? Do you know off the top of your head? Yes, it's cdc.gov. Good. CDC for Center for Disease Control.gov. So go there. If you're going to um, uh, Costa Rica and you wonder, you can find the definitive answer there. I'm talking with Dr. Chapnick from uh, New York. And uh, Dr. Chapnick, what about this uh, old uh, the yellow vaccination card that I traveled with for, for years? Do people still use that when they're on the road? Is that still required? Yes, the yellow vaccination card. It's actually recently been updated. A new version of it is now required. But that card still is in existence. And for the countries that require yellow fever vaccination for entry, and again, the CDC website is a good source to find out which countries those are, that yellow card properly stamped is still required. So if a shot is required to get into a country, you have to prove at the border you've had that shot. And with this, what is it called, the International Certificate of Vaccination, is that right? Yes, that's right. If you're going to get the shot, you still have to go to the border with proof you took the shot, right? Correct. And the only one vaccine that's still required for entry to some countries is the yellow fever vaccine. With one exception, huh. that being the meningitis vaccine for people going to the Hajj in Saudi Arabia. But other than that, there are no requirements. And I'm not going to get invited to the Hajj in Saudi Arabia, I don't think. <laughs> right. Now, Dr. Chapnick, what's the difference between a required shot and a recommended shot? Now, I've heard that a government requires shots of visitors in order to protect its people against you. And it recommends shots to protect you against what you might encounter in that country. Is there anything to that? It's partially true. The required shot, that being the yellow fever shot, is to protect people in that country, but it's also to protect you because yellow fever is an untreatable and potentially fatal disease. So with that one, it goes both ways. You don't want to mess around. The recommended <laughs> shots are more to protect the traveler than the people there, but also can serve to protect people in that country. If a country recommends a shot, would you take that seriously? Personally, would you take that as a kind of a, a requirement almost? I would, because I'm a very strong believer in the benefits of vaccines. And that's why I recommend the CDC website, because that's right. something by or it comes out of a United States government agency. And what's recommended there is clearly for the protection of the travelers. When somebody has a prescription medicine and they're going to be traveling for an extended period, they should probably bring a written-out prescription so they can fill it on the road. What is your advice in that regard? Yes, it is a good idea to bring a written prescription. It's a good idea to have a written record of all the medications you're on. And it's also important to remember, wherever in the world you may be, a good source of finding out where to obtain that medication if you should lose it or run out or whatever is the U.S. consulate in whatever country you happen to be in. That would be one of the first calls you'd make. If you need help, you can call the consulate and they're able to point you in the right direction for doctor or medical care. Exactly. And it's important. Some people forget to do this or don't pay attention. The airlines always say don't put prescription medicines in checked 
baggage, right. and I can't overemphasize how important that is. Wow, good tips. Is it is it still a concern that a traveler would leave home with the popular name or the, the business name of a drug here, and that would be meaningless in another country where they should have had the generic name of that drug? Yes, that's a very good point. The generic name, that being the chemical name of the medication, will be universally known by healthcare providers, but the brand name might not be. Okay, so remind your doctor. The doctor should know, but you want a prescription for the generic name rather than the American brand name. I'm talking with Dr. Chapnick. He's at the Maimonides uh, Medical Center in New York, and his website will be available on our website, and we have some callers. Brian in Wisconsin, thanks for your call. Hi. Um, my question has to do with fear of flying. There are so many places I would like to go to, I'd like to visit. I'd love to go to Ireland. But what's been keeping me back all these years is I've had this fear of flying. I haven't flown for about six years now. And I'm wondering, is there some type of medication I could take that could help me deal with this problem? The best thing to help deal with that specific problem is almost a gradual acclimation kind of program. And a number of the airlines have these programs where they'll do things like first have you go in an airline seat, then have you go in a plane, then have you go in a plane that's on the runway. And gradual acclimation works very well. Combined with, and this your physician certainly could help you with, medications for the anxiety that's felt when you actually will fly. So it's a combination of becoming acclimated to it, as well as supplemental medication. And Brian, I fight that fear in my own mind by reminding myself every day 30,000 airplanes take off and land safely in the United States every day. Entire years go by without a single fatality in the commercial airline industry. I know that's a little cerebral if you have this sort of a fear, but it helps me a lot. We have an email from Jan in Walnut Creek, uh, Dr. Chapnick, and she writes, uh, I always seem to get a cold after a long flight. How effective would it be for me to wear a mask on airplanes or to use over-the-counter remedies? What's your take on that, doctor? Well, my take would be the, the what the person feels as a cold is probably a lot more likely to be either a response to the dry air in an airliner uh, or perhaps an allergic reaction to something because a cold itself the virus that causes the cold has an incubation period of several days. So even if someone were to catch a cold on a plane, it wouldn't present itself until a few days later. Yeah, these people are feeling bad upon arrival, so they've just had a, a reaction to something on the plane then. Exactly. That would not be an infection if it happens right after arrival. Okay. I always remember that you know a flight is stress on my body, and I make a point to leave home well-rested. That helps a lot. We have Marty on the line in Illinois. Thanks for your call, Marty. You're welcome. Uh, I am not a big fan of taking antibiotics, especially on a prophylactic basis, which sometimes is recommended when you're going places that have water and uh, foodborne bacterial diseases. Is there any evidence that taking probiotics would help to fend off or even treat any of those kinds of infections? Well, for the first part of your question, um, very few travel medicine providers actually recommend prophylactic antibiotics. What most of us suggest is a short course of antibiotics to be brought along to be taken only if traveler's diarrhea develops. So that's really treatment rather than prophylaxis. Now, the issue of probiotics, the first really important point is anyone who has a condition that can suppress immunity shouldn't take probiotics because they can occasionally develop infections from these things. These are live organisms. And if the immune system isn't working well, they can represent a problem. The evidence on whether these actually prevent infections is really conflicting. Some studies show they're beneficial. Some studies show they're not. I can certainly say they're not harmful, except for people who have poor immune function. Excuse me, what's your take on these airborne medicines and just these uh, super vitamins that people take? In terms of the issue of the mega vitamins or super vitamins or things like that, having adequate nutrition is certainly important. Having adequate rest, adequate nutrition, all of those things. One of my nutrition professors in medical school would tell us that people who take mega doses of vitamins excrete the most expensive urine in the world because really what happens 
to these um, super doses, that is doses more than what's really needed, they just pass out of the body. Right. Um, one other very important point is some vitamins that are fat-soluble, like A, D, and E, can actually accumulate in the body and cause problems if they're taken in too high doses. Wow. That's very interesting, and that's a beautiful quote, and I think that uh, must lead us into a question about Pepto-Bismol. We have Thomas on the line in Tuscaloosa, Alabama. Hi, Thomas. Hi, Rick. How are you doing? Great. Thanks for your call. I got a question for the doctor here. Uh, yes. Uh, this kind of goes along with the, uh, the last question about uh, prophylactic use to protect against traveler's diarrhea. I'm originally from Minnesota, and uh, one of my doctors at the Mayo Clinic had told me that one thing that you can do to uh, prevent uh, traveler's diarrhea is take Pepto-Bismol prophylactically. And uh, he had said you can take it up to four times a day, either two tablets or uh, two ounces of the, of the liquid medicine, and you take it uh, immediately before uh, breakfast, lunch, and dinner, and then once before you go to bed. And you can do that for up to three weeks, and while not completely effective, it can reduce, say, maybe 65% of cases of traveler's diarrhea. And um, it's a, it has a couple of side effects. It can blacken your stool and blacken your tongue, and it's important not to take it if you're taking aspirin uh, or if you're, excuse me, allergic to aspirin. The very first time I ever went to Europe, uh, I got terrible traveler's diarrhea, unfortunately, and I've... Uh, took his advice and did that every time I've been back since, and I've been back quite a few times, and that did seem to work, at least for me. But uh, I was wondering if the doctor could talk about uh, if, if that is indeed an effective treatment. This has been a few years. But. Okay. Thanks, Thomas. Mm -hmm. um, the answer is yes. Pepto-Bismol certainly can help either prevent traveler's diarrhea or make it less severe when it occurs. It seems, though, that if it's started very soon after the illness begins, it's just about as effective as if it's taken prophylactically. So that's really a decision the individual can make. Do I want to take this medication several times a day through my trip, or do I just want to wait until perhaps the illness develops? In which case, as I said, it works almost as well. Yeah, okay. and, and travelers tell me it's not the end of the world. I mean, you just kind of you keep you, you take it in stride the best you can. Thanks for your call, Thomas. Thank you. I'm talking with Dr. Edward Chapnick, who's the director of the Division of Infectious Diseases and the head of the travel medicine program at Maimonides Medical Center in New York City. Dr. Chapnick, is the IAMAT, the International Association for Medical Assistance to Travelers, still a, a good resource, and is it still in business? Yes, it is a good resource, and they also have a website. I I believe that the address is that abbreviation, um, but they are a good source of information and all about specific recommendations as well as information about where to find medical care when abroad. And you mentioned uh, we've made a lot of progress on diseases and so on. Are there diseases that have been eliminated in the United States that, that remain a threat overseas that we should be aware of? Well, one very important one, because it's vaccine-preventable and a lot of us don't think of too often, is polio. Hmm. Those of us from the United States have been immunized for polio as children, but it does periodically pop up in various places around the world. And for people who do travel frequently, especially in underdeveloped countries, taking a booster vaccine as an adult is a good idea. As a matter of fact, we have an uh, email from Erica sure. in Hudson, Wisconsin, and she says, I'm young enough to not have been immunized against polio, but some areas of travel do have polio. Uh, is that a, a, a common thing that people uh, or young people would be less likely to be immunized against polio? Well, not here in the United States, no. So she should have been uh, immunized against polio. The vaccine is still given. Okay. Yes. It's not the, the oral one that many of us have as children. It's an injectable one. Okay. Um, but in the United States, it is still given. But again, as an adult, the booster is a good idea. And what countries in general would that be a concern, polio? It's periodically come up in countries in... Africa, in the Indian subcontinent, there was even a number of years ago a few cases in Israel. Hmm. There even was about 20 or 30 years ago a few cases in the United States among unimmunized right. children, I mean, in a group of people who didn't immunize their children. So again, for people who like to travel, 
Getting one booster as an adult is a good idea. And Smart then idea. Don't have to really be concerned about which specific country. Dr. Edward Chapnick, thank you so much. This is sort of inspiring us all to get up to date on the uh, concerns we should have when we're traveling abroad to uh, make sure we got the proper vaccinations. And as you said, travel smartly just from an accident point of view and a stay healthy and watch what you eat and drink and so on. Thanks again for your help and happy travels. Thank you. Tell us about your travel impressions in the form of a haiku poem. You know how they work. There's three lines describing a scene, maybe with a bit of a surprise at the end. And the pattern is five syllables on the first line, seven on the second, and five syllables again on the last line. There's a link in the radio corner at ricksteves.com for sending us your original haiku. Here's what some listeners recently sent in about their travels around the world. Christy Brown of Seattle has a reminder from a trip to Hong Kong, which she describes for us in this haiku. Incense at a Chinese temple. My favorite souvenir? Burnt holes in the back of my coat. Jean Wallacavage of Aurora, Colorado, sent us this haiku, inspired by an African culinary adventure in Djibouti City, Djibouti. Djibouti goat meal. City goat or country goat? Oh no, city goat. And Jerry Jardine from Edmonds, Washington, made this discovery in the Sinai Desert. Sinai Desert Morn. Wondering how I got here. Camels have bad breath. Travel with Rick Steves is produced by Tim Tatton at Europe Through the Back Door in Edmonds, Washington. There's more in the radio section of ricksteves.com, including links for submitting your original travel haiku and to the websites of our guests. Thanks to Sarah McCormick and to our colleagues at the Radio Foundation in Manhattan for their help today. Thanks also to Keith Sticklemeyer for reading today's haiku. Our theme music is by Jerry Frank. Listen again next week for more Travel with Rick Steves. Each year, Rick Steves tour guides take free-spirited travelers on escorted tours through Turkey, Greece, and beyond, one small group at a time. This year, we're featuring tours of Athens and the heart of Greece. Istanbul, the best of Turkey, and Village Turkey. For a free catalog and Rick's Tour Experience DVD, visit the tour pages at ricksteves.com.